Hey everybody, it's Tim. This is a bonus edition of the podcast. Uh, it's something that me and Bill Crystal have been doing every Tuesday on YouTube, Ballot Boxes, Bill and Tim. Uh, we're putting this in your podcast feed this week. Please leave a comment uh, in the YouTube or in the Apple or Spotify uh, podcast feed and let us know what you think about this, um, whether we should turn this into an audio feed for you guys as well. Bill and I try to spend every week getting a little more into the weeds about the politics of things, but also having a historical perspective, because I don't know if you know this, but Bill's kind of old. So we like to joke about that and you know talk about the Dan Quayle years. Uh, and so I, I think it is something that you guys will be enjoy, enjoy, will be additive to uh, what you're getting usually here on the next level. So uh, up next, uh, Ballot Box with Bill and Tim. Uh, let us know what you think about it. And we will be back here on Friday uh, where you will get the live show that me and Sarah and JVL are doing from San Francisco. See you all then. Hey, welcome to Ballot Box. I'm Tim Miller with my co-host, the great Bill Crystal. Uh, we're doing this on Wednesday today because we kind of did a flip that, reverse it, the next level, uh, reacted to Iowa on Tuesday morning. So if you want to see my tired, raw, emotional response to the Republican Party submitting to Trump yet again, um, you can hear all of my rage and recriminations over on that feed. Uh, Bill, uh, you know, I think we're going to get a little more analytical with Bill Crystal. You don't, you don't let your feelings get in the way you, of you, your if analysis. You want the, if you want the raw emotional rage, you want, you want to watch the next level, and, and it's great, <laughs> and you should watch it because Tim is Tim is excellent at the emotional rage at the Republican Party. But yeah, here That's we're good. coolly analytical. We have no, we have no feelings at all. We're not revolted and disgusted by all these conservatives and Republicans. <laughs> no, I'm still revolted and disgusted, but we can still analyze it too. So, Iowa, I want um, people have heard my feelings, um, despair, anger. Uh, what was your uh, response to the caucus on uh, Monday night? Was there anything that can be learned besides kind of the obvious um, about Trump's Trump's hold on the party? I mean, I think we said last week on this, or I said that uh, it'd be great if Trump could be held below 50 percent. It'd be great if Nikki could be a clear second. Trump exceeded 50 percent only by a bit, but he did. And Nikki was third. So I'm not going to pretend this was a great result. Uh, on the other hand, he, she was third by two points and Trump exceeded 50% by one point. 50, there was low turnout. 56,000 Iowans voted for, for Trump. I don't want to minimize the fact that he's the prohibitive favorite, but I also think, you know, it is only 56,000 Iowans. The interesting question for me, and I don't know if you've done this math, Tim, you, if you sort of take the Iowa electorate, who voted in terms of their socioeconomic, you know, college versus non-college, evangelical versus non-evangelical, much smaller percentage of uh, independents than will vote in New Hampshire and sort of map that onto the New Hampshire electorate. I wonder what that rate is. 50-20 probably becomes, what do you think, like 40-30? And the, yeah, like the real starting point in New Hampshire is more like that, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to tell about the independents. So I can speak to just on the Republican side. Like for me, and again, this is not a, there's no comparison with the people of New Hampshire. The, I, you know, New Hampshire is very unique electorate, um, uh, you know, even in our, in our monoculture, uh, you know, A, you have all the undeclareds, uh, you still have these kind of vestigial Northeastern moderates, your Charlie Baker, Phil Scott kind of Republicans don't really exist that much in Iowa. So, so there's not like a clear apples to apples, but I just, I kind of look at Polk County, right? Polk County is where Des Moines is. You know, this is not going to be a ton of evangelical voters. Uh, you know, it's, it's going to be the most uh, you know, easy thing to compare. Trump gets 38 there, Haley 25. 
you know, and then DeSantis, so how do you break down the DeSantis hard? No, but I, so I think that's kind of about right. Like before you get in the undeclareds, right? So if Trump's up 13 among Republicans, can Nikki cut that down among undeclareds, get into single digits? And, and that, you know, uh, just as, as sort of, you know, back of the envelope math, not, not high level data analysis here. Like, I think that's kind of where, where the race. No, that feels right to me. Nikki's in a way starts off behind, but maybe behind by 10 or eight, not by yeah. 25. But or thirty as in, as in Iowa, I guess I'm puzzled. What do you think of the fact that she cho- chooses not to debate DeSantis? I guess the argument for that is, uh, you know, they just hit and attack each other, and it just helps Trump, which is not crazy. On the other hand, I just feel like New Hampshire, New Hampshireites, whatever they're called, Granite Staters—I don't even know what the right—they uh, like kind of debates. I mean, Reagan benefited a lot in 1980 from making a big deal of the fact that he was ready to debate and. Um, it feels to me like Nikki should have taken the stance. Fine, I'll debate everyone. I'll debate every night. I'll debate anyone you want. I'm here. I'm here for you in New Hampshire. And instead, she's sort of like, it's what you do if you're sitting on a lead in a way. You cancel the debates, but she's not in the lead, right? Uh, yeah, you- I'm of mixed view on it. I think there are two two minds. And uh, as is appropriate for ballot box, you make a reference to the 1980 primary. I'll make a reference to the 2012 primary. You might not recall the mano a mano Newt Gingrich versus John Huntsman debate in 2012. Uh, both men thought it might be an opportunity to break into the top two, you know, get a little attention to, to New Hampshire voters uh, because, you know, Mitt Romney was not wanting to participate in as many debates as we wanted. Um, I didn't end up moving the needle too much, I don't think. So, you know, there's uh, you can overstate these sorts of things. Um, I, I I do think that New Hampshire voters want to see her. I, I guess I'm going to kind of refrain judgment. We'll be together live next Tuesday. I'll kind of refrain judgment until then to see what she does this week. She has to do something, right? If it's like, oh, I'm not going to debate and I'm just going to do town halls where my message stays exactly the same and I don't take on Trump directly and I don't make any news then I'm going to be kind of like, well, why didn't you just debate, right? Um, if there's some other tactics at play, we'll see. I, I think that probably just putting myself, and not probably, I've spoken to some of the Haley people, like in their head, they want to tamp the DeSantis number down. Right. Now, DeSantis isn't even competing there, but it's like, why give DeSantis time on WMUR? Now, maybe the counter to that is maybe the more people see DeSantis, the less they like him. <laughs> so I don't know if they should be that scared. But I, I kind of think that's their strategic thinking on this one. No, I, I think it's a defensible decision. But I very much agree. Nikki needs to be running as an underdog this week. And I worry sometimes that she seems to think she's got a strategy that allows her to be almost like a front, you know, she's got it all in place and it's all going to fall into her lap and she just needs to be cautious and careful and, and you know, reasonably impressive in certain ways. But I don't know. I feel like a little more aggressiveness by Nikki, but I think that'll happen. I mean, she understands the situation and uh, I think it could be a more interesting week than people think. And I think the odds of her winning or coming very close to New Hampshire aren't, you know, it's not quite 50, 50, but it's not, it's one in four or something. It's not one in 10. So I, I, I think it could be an interesting Tuesday night. Yeah, I, it could be. And, and again, just uh, on the Nikki kind of strategic element of this, the things that are, that are concerning, right. Are, um, her speech in Iowa. Do you watch her speech in Iowa? Whatever we want to call no, it. Do we, we don't call them concession or victory speeches. The I, I was too depressed. I, I was depressed. I had had a drink and gone to gone to sleep. I wasn't on MSNBC until two a.m. like you, doing deep analysis of every county and you know the of every few hundred votes in Iowa. So I had to suffer through it. Um, you know, it was it, it, it did not was not the speech of somebody that that it felt like there was a lot of urgency. You know, to your point, right? Like it just, it was, it was, she was hitting her marks. 
you know, she's again, she's more talented than DeSantis. She's more normal than Trump. Uh, but it was not like, you know, it didn't feel like there was any uh, emotion. Um, you know, one thing, um, yeah, Trump, uh, 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 his speech was so weird and like low energy and and he like spent 20 minutes acknowledging people, but he kind of does it as like the MC at a, at a Reno, you know, or like a, at a roast, like, 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 a, you know, so he's like roasted. It's like, Nikki is like, and I'd like to thank state Senator so-and-so I just, it was a very f- formal, basic speech. And it's like, okay. And then she goes to New Hampshire and, and at 2am I was on set with David Pluff, Obama's campaign manager. And he was like apoplectic that she was not having an event when she landed in New Hampshire, you know, and this is a typical kind of David Pluff type thing. And he was, you know, he was, he's always like, you have to be in the morning news cycle. Like when people wake up in New Hampshire, I, he, she needs to be on the TV. And like, where is the urgency? So again, it's a small tactical thing, but I think put all together, you're not debating. She doesn't do that. She gives a rote speech. I, you know, there, we're now at Wednesday. It's been, you know, it's been 36 hours. Like, where is the urgency? Like, she does, she is behind, right? She's not ahead. Like, if she's going to change the narrative, something has to happen besides just the Chris Christie voters all going to vote for her. Yeah, and the final point, I think the urgency is such a good good word that captures this. Because, look, I think it's a nice formulation of yours. She's more talented than DeSantis and more normal than Trump. And that goes a fair amount of the way for getting her, yeah. you know, a decent chunk of votes. The urgency is both a, a, an electoral urgency. She's got to win in New Hampshire. And also she has to cast the, the, the vote as a more urgent matter about the future of the country and about yes. Trump and about the threat of the second Trump term. She doesn't have to go all the way that you and I and maybe Stoddard and everyone want to go, uh, which I think is the truth, incidentally, about how dangerous it is. But she has to go some of that way. Those undecided, the unaffiliateds in New Hampshire, the independents. They need to turn up, come out, and and a lot of them are going to end up voting Democratic in November. They're Biden voters in twenty twenty, but they need to feel this is a chance to do some damage to Trump, and that's really it's really urgent to do that. It's really urgent to do that, and that she hasn't quite conveyed. I don't think. Yeah, and I, there's another value to that, and I, I want to get to the long term elements of this next because some of this is might be academic, but um, to the extent that it matters that Trump loses somewhere, I, the turnout side of this is really important for her yeah. right and i know that, that's like a cliche oh it all comes down to turn out but if you like if you look at what happened in iowa and we don't we won't really know until next week like is the republican base depressed was it just very cold right like were the can you know like, like there's a lot of uh, you know we have one data point on this so far but the one data point is that that fifty six thousand fewer people voted in iowa in 24 than 16 and and, and Trump supposedly, like his argument is like that he brings in new people. Well, but he's had eight years to bring in new people, and they went it went down this this time, right? And, and DeSantis spent a ton of money on turnout. So if let's project that out to New Hampshire, if the if the total number of voters are down, right, within the Republican electorate, if she can excite enough undeclared voters who don't love her let's just be honest right who like nikki haley's not their cup of tea exactly but if she can motivate enough of them to say okay tuesday night like i'm gonna go out and do this because it's important for democracy it's important because trump is such a threat like it's important that we have at least a choice that people have a choice even if you know it's probably unlikely it's quite unlikely extremely unlikely (laughs) that she's gonna actually win it's important people have a choice you got to motivate people somehow and and 
And, and that just seems missing six days out. But that can happen in the last five days. And we saw that Hillary uh, Obama, this is what we were talking about with Pluff, like 08 Hillary Obama. Like there's a surge of, of support for Hillary in the last few days because she kind of was wearing her emotions on her sleeve and was talking about the importance of this and the glass ceiling and and, and like the narrative change like that. The mar- it went the other way for Marco in 2016, right? Like that things can happen in the last four days of the New Hampshire primary. These people are super engaged. This is not like super Tuesday voters. So, but she's got to give them something. I totally agree. I mean, the, the degree to which they're engaged is really extraordinary. And it's good. I mean, it's good for the country. And I, I talked with someone who was at the Iowa caucuses working for Nikki, came in from out of state, is Frank Lavin, whom you probably know a little bit. I um, know Frank. Well, was a contributor and, uh, occasionally. It was Reagan's political director at the end of the Reagan administration, then ambassador to Singapore, big foreign policy expert. And to his credit, he just got on a plane and talked to the Nikki people. In fact, they assigned him two precincts and he went out and worked these precincts with like a hundred people each. He didn't like, I don't think people there knew that it was Fort Reagan's former political director and an ambassador to Singapore and so forth. Probably doesn't and, help these days. What's that? Probably doesn't help these days. Well, that's probably true. Right I was a deep him, state but, man. But he, he was, I was texting with him and he was, you know, there. he did okay. Trump won neither of his precincts. They were, I think, in the outskirts of Des Moines. But he, um, maybe Cedar Rapids, but anyway, he, um, so he was felt okay about that, but he was a little, you know, a little down about the results, but he did say, and I don't, and this wasn't just being hokey, that it was actually sort of moving being there in the sense that people were very decent. The thing went smoothly. There was no, bull, you know, bullshit about, oh, people are stealing votes. It's rigged, all that. The actual local Trump supporters were normal and courteous human beings, so far as he could tell, and pleasant enough to him, uh, and and so forth. So there is a little bit of the kind of Iowa, New Hampshire, there is a kind of civic democracy that is somewhat heartening to see in this day and age. Yeah, and I think it's even greater in New Hampshire just having done both those states. Uh, you just uh, It's just, New Hampshire's small. It's just yeah. small, and there's just like a pride in it that is a, ca- a little bit of a category difference from, from Iowa. So anyway, okay, we'll see. Looking more long-term, um, I think that we both can agree that Trump, I mean, like this seems almost, like it seems almost a fait accompli, right? It's worth fighting, but it's almost a fait accompli. And one of the signs of that is what A.B. Stoddard writes about this morning for the bulwark. I, just an abs- insane level of submission to Trump from the new mega establishment, which, we, which is a big theme of this discussion. Um, the Ted Cruz on Fox last night um, endorses Trump. Uh, at the same time that Trump says that he should have killed Ted Cruz, Ted Cruz should be <laughs> shouldn't even be in politics anymore. T- Ted Cruz is sucking up to him, same same as it ever was. Vivek endorses him. Weird kind of a speech in New Hampshire where Trump is just like like kind of behind him. Like I want this fucking blowhard to shut up. He has this weird face on. <laughs> but uh, but everybody, you know, Charlie wrote about Joni Ernst. Uh, uh, Mike Lee does this strange. Oh, this is a binary choice between Trump and and Biden already before anybody's even voted. Like it does seem like uh, that the people who are remaining within the Republican party, uh, who are not the small faction that are fighting this have just accepted Trump and that this is kind of inevitable. And, you know, New Hampshire is maybe just a speed bump. What, what, how do you, how do you assess that both analytically and emotionally? Give me both sides. I mean, analytically, I think the polls do suggest that New Hampshire probably ends up being a speed bump, but maybe not inevitably. And I guess I'm keeping a sliver of hope alive by hoping that the voters rebel against these fairly repulsive politicians, if I could say, not to not to cast aspersions too much on Ted Cruz and Vivek, but uh, Ramaswamy. But on the other hand, why not? 
And I mean, the Capri. Yeah, I, I think this is a safe space for aspersion casting. I think What's this is that? a safe space. This is this a safe is a, space for aspersion casting. Yeah. Good point. Thank you. I mean, uh, AB was very good on this this morning at the, in the bulwark. But I mean, the, the preemptive capitulation, it's one thing. I think you and I discussed this maybe a bit last week. It's one thing to after the votes are cast and it's after Super Tuesday or after your own state votes. And you say, OK, you know what? I've been trying to stay out of it, but the voters in my state want Trump. So I'm, I'm with them. That's not ca- courageous. It's not leadership, but it's understandable. To preemptively capitulate because you read or you hear or you know that Trump will do be a little nicer to you if you affirmatively endorse him before January 15th as opposed to just keeping quiet. God forbid any of them should actually do what they publicly, what they say they want privately, which is to actually not have Trump as the nominee and actually act to support uh, uh, Nikki Haley or I guess maybe DeSantis if they think that's still plausible. I mean, that's that's even beyond the round. You can't even imagine a normal Republican politician doing that. The one person who supported Nikki, I think, right in the last few days is Larry Hogan, who's basically not a Republican anymore. I mean, to his credit, I made a a joke in my text chain. I was like, Nikki's endorsements are pretty uh, are are not meaningfully different from the the endorsements that Bill Kristol would have had had he had he run for president at this point. I mean, the elected Uh, officials are horrible and they shouldn't be let off the hook. And we already see the capitulation of the conservative elites, the articles in National Review, the journals a little slower, but they're going to get there, too, about how it's the Democrats fault that the Trump's going to win. It's Alvin Bragg's fault. It's I don't know, whatever anyone else pro-Palestinian demonstrators fault or something. Republican primary voters have no agency their children they don't like this stuff so they're just going to vote for trump and god forbid they should explain to them that they shouldn't vote for him i'm curious this week incidentally i haven't really looked at obviously the journal editorial page or a national review but will they actually tell their readers hey you gotta if you're in new hampshire you should vote for haley you could stop trump maybe you ultimately they even want desantis but i mean or will they just kind of go into this slight, well, kind of dissatisfied with certain things Trump's saying, but the real problem is Joe Biden, you know? I assume I don't think there's that. any reason to hope any of these people are going to come out and say they support Haley. I mean, the Boston Globe will, right? I mean, you know what I mean? Like, it's, again, this is, this is like the crazy part about this whole thing, that in their little bubble, in the conservative elite bubble, it's like, oh, the Democrats secretly want Trump. And oh, it's like the Democrats fault the Trump's nominee because they did this out of the other thing. And it's like, no, actually, it's, it's you know, it will be the Boston Globe. It will be the liberal institutions. It's, it's Democratic donors. It's Jamie Dimon. It's, you know, it's these people, the ones that are out there saying, can we do something here? Can we, try, can we stop it? Can we, I don't love Nikki Haley, but she's obviously better than him. It's, it's Democrats and never Trumpers that are doing that. And then when we do that, they say, Oh, we well, can't go for Haley. Look at who she's got. She's got liberal Bill Crystal on her. Like she's got woke Bill Crystal on her side. You know, so so it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't. Like we can't do anything. They're making us do this. But then when they then you know, it's like if Democrats are never Trumpers, help Haley. It's oh, ooh, we can't be with them, so we got to be with Trump. Or you know, if Democrats are never Trumpers, attack Haley. Then it's like oh, see, they secretly want Trump. <laughs> you know, like they have no agency or ability to do anything. It's it, like it truly is crazy how. And so I don't see any reason to expect anybody with any standing in the Republican infrastructure going forward, past people maybe, but going forward will will do anything this week. Oh, um, right. Uh, funny, you know who else has their number? I was at the New York Young Republican Club, as I told you. It's yeah, a very was that? outfit, watching the results. It was good. Uh, we'll have more to talk about this, but there was just one thing that you just said that that sparked a memory from from the uh, gathering. It seems like 24, 20, mid-20s somethings, Trump 
types. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of bridge and tuttle. Um, and I say that with affection. <laughs> that is not a, not derision. Uh, a lot of queens. You know, a lot of New York accent types. Uh, anyway, I overheard the conversation. They're watching Fox. They had Fox results on, and one guy says to another guy, "Like all these people on Fox, they're secretly hoping for Trump's assassination." Like they're secretly hoping that Trump gets killed because like they don't want him. You can tell, you can tell, you know, and they're mien following the announcements that they're not excited like we are. And they see that they can't say it. They know they can't say it, but they secretly want Trump to die. And it's and that's like the crazy kid is kind of right. Man. I don't know. Like, I don't know about legitimately. I don't know if Brett Baer like really wants Trump to be assassinated, but like kind of, I think that they would like for him to disappear. You know, and they are right. Like they do have their like Trump has Trump and his people have the Republican establishment's number on this, and and it's and it continues to work. It's fine. It's you know they all are just well can you know are going to succumb to him no matter what. The old Republican establishment is just now the tail on the MAGA establishment's dog, right? I mean, they just right. kind of they they have a little bit of doubts, but they have you know they say they express them privately and then they go along, and that's where they're going to. They're going to, they're part. So what are they really? They're not even, the whole point of an establishment, incidentally, not to get pedantic, but is that it it, it defends the established order against things like MAGA. And they really, you know, it's like if they're worse than than not having an establishment at all in a funny way, right? They legitimize Trump while not opposing him at all effectively. They capitulate, you know, the worst thing is an establishment that capitulates, right? It's sort of the worst of both worlds. Um, while we are complaining about establishments, um, we can do a brief complaint about the Democratic establishment. Um, here's a statement from the Democratic National Committee yesterday on Asa Hutchinson's exit from the 2024 GOP primary. Uh, quote, this news comes as a shock to those of us who could have sworn he had already dropped out. End quote. Okay. I mean... I can see how a statement like this goes out. Some, you know, it's a. Tw- I used to be the person that wrote these statements ten years ago. Somebody who's twenty eight years old who's trying to be funny, who's trying to get some clips for the boss. But like, it's a little bit business as usual, given the sta- scale of the threat and the fact that Asa Hutchinson voters were going to kind of need to be Joe Biden voters. And it undercuts the notion that this of urgency of this is an extraordinary election where we need to refrain from <laughs> that I did these things when I was even older than 28 years old, probably 35 <laughs> years old. I mean, yeah, we've refrained from the normal sniping and welcomed the Asa Hutchinson supporters into the Biden coalition. And that I, I would say they have not individuals in the Democratic Party have done that, including Biden himself to some degree, and and certainly many, you know, senators and governors, actually, Shapiro and Whitmer and stuff. But I wouldn't say they have internalized as a party the notion that they got to be more than just, you know, it, it's got to be more than the Democratic Party against Trump. It's got to be a Democratic small D coalition against Trump. And that's how that's how they win. That's how Biden wins. Um, OK, before we leave, one more question for you on Biden. I need, always need to do a uh, how alarmed is Bill Crystal check. Um A couple of pretty bad polls about the Biden approval. I mean, I, I'm still I'm not. I'm not going to start minterating my underwear until we get into March. I keep telling myself that I want people to, I want the Trump nomination to sink in. I want a couple more months of the economic stability to sink in, but even still, um, you know, being down in the mid thirties in these, some of these approval numbers that we've seen for Biden is, is a little bit concerning. Where, where are you at on that, on that subject? 
and that Georgia poll and the Atlanta Journal Constitution, which I have no reason to think wasn't a straight, you know, poll. I mean, <laughs> the agency is not pro Trump. Um, it's forty five thirty seven in Georgia, a state that was even last time. So even if Georgia is going to go further south, so to speak, than the Michigan or Pennsylvania, that's not that's not encouraging. No, I think it's not great, and I do think just if you look around at the news, the economy is coming back. That's the one thing that maybe people are realizing that, and maybe that helps Biden. The world is getting more and more messy. I don't think it's Biden's fault. I think he's doing pretty well in handling some of these challenges and not as aggressive, not handling them as aggressively, some of them, the Houthis and stuff as he might. But the one thing he's not doing is explaining what he's doing to the American public and explaining that he's being a sort of a strong leader. And I do, I very much worry about the Jimmy Carter phenomenon. I was alive during then. You weren't quite born, but, um, you know, Carter was a more of a mixed, had more of a mixed record as president than in the way we Republicans acknowledged at the time, or than voters might have thought in 1980. But he just see, it just seemed that things were out of control. Now, obviously having, you know, American hostages in Iran is a little different from the Houthis, sure. you know, firing some missiles at shipping in the, in, in the Gulf. But still, I, I do worry that the combination of he can't get the aid for Ukraine through. He's not even making the case for it publicly that much. And the Houthis are, sh are shooting at us. And, and the Middle East generally looks bad and, you know, whatever. I mean, I just, I think he needs to, they need to think harder about uh, not just selling their economic record, but he needs to look like he's, uh, you know, in charge and is kind of a tough guy, honestly. Yeah. And just a final thing on the Carter um, comparison and, and, the, and the need to guard against it. Uh, I did an interview with Josh Green a couple weeks ago. People can find on this feed uh, who, who wrote a book about the the, le the Democratic left, the populist left that kind of begins at the Carter era. And because that stuff is history for me, I was learning some things. <laughs> and so as I was reading the book, uh, Carter really did get rolled by Congress in a bad way. And like in, in a sense, so in a sense, the kind of image of him as being weak, you know, forget... Uh, putting aside the kind of machismo manly qualities, the stupid MAGA left, but I just mean like politically weak, right? That he wasn't able to get his political agenda through that. There was a, some truth to that, right? When you like kind of look at, it was kind of shocking actually how much he got pushed around to me. Like as I was kind of like reading through the details of all this stuff that I kind of only knew the top level elements of, and that has not happened to Biden. Right. right? Like Biden has been, has been politically, quite strong when you just look at it in the policy and legislative sense like like his agenda has mostly gotten done in the face of a very narrow majority you know and like in the senate and then and then you're having to deal with this crazy house uh, and it's been the house republicans that have looked weak really I, again just in this concept and just in the construct of like legislative like are you getting the agenda that you've promised passed and so and like, but Biden personally does not, isn't, doesn't, it doesn't feel that way to people. Right. And so right. like, to me, it's like, how can that element be communicated? How can we like alpha dog Biden as compared to this like totally dysfunctional house? And like, I think that's a big challenge for them. And, and just to accentuate that point, I mean, I do remember uh, 1980, I haven't looked up the dates, but I think it was January 1980 that we had the failed rescue Iranian hostage rescue attempt. And I remember watching the president, President Carter, report about on TV and just feeling sick to my stomach. And obviously, it was terrible news. And then his secretary of state quit uh, because he was against doing this. I mean, we had that degree of chaos and of failure, right? Your own secretary of state quits in the January of an election year, a respected figure, Cyrus Vance. And, um, and 
Biden is nothing like that, what everyone thinks of the different policies and the different limitations sure. of. So that makes, I don't know, does that make the low approval rating a little like, oh, it's going to fix itself because it's not quite based in reality? This is, I guess, JVL's kind of basic view. Or does it make it even more worrisome that, in a way, voted this, this the perception of Biden, which has got to be age related in part, obviously, has sunk in in a way regardless of reality. So that, right. that's in a way harder to fix, right? If it were reality, you could fix it, you know? Yeah. Um, kind of reminds me of like, looking at my Jeb Bush polls sometimes. And it was, and, uh, and uh, it's like the things that voters hated the most about him were his name and his personality. <laughs> I was like, well, it's gonna, it's pretty hard to fix that, you know? Um, so anyway, hopefully we're not in that shape. Uh, Bill Crystal, we'll be back on Tuesday night. We'll be in studio together. We, you'll be able to see the Bulwark Studios. It's looking all snazzy. So come hang out with us probably around 9 p.m. Monitor our Twitter feeds and, uh, and the Bulwark emails. We'll keep you up to speed. And uh, you can uh, make sure to subscribe to us here on YouTube and uh, rate and review us if you're listening on the podcast. Uh, we'll see you guys next Tuesday. Thanks, Bill. See you next week.